But you have to not be fooled by anything else and you have to also recognize the power. And a lot of the words that are in, that you read between the lines, which we'll go over a little bit, some of the things Sri Yukteswar says, the implications, the ability to do what he so simply describes, like there's one, one phrase in here that I just love so much when they talked about um, uh, the, the cobra. When the cobra was slithering towards Sri Yukteswar and he began to clap his hands and sort of relate to it like it was a friend and it just put its hood down and slithered between his legs. And uh, Yogananda remarks that it took me some time to realize that my master was beyond fear of hurt from any living creature. Isn't that a simple phrase to put it? Beyond fear of hurt from any living creature. Now that, of course, includes men, you know, mankind, as well as all, um, everything that lived. They, they just, he, he understood. This, this book, this reading of this book has given me this peculiar insight that uh, came partly, who asked me the question, whoever was sitting there about avatars last week? Was it you, Sarah? Yeah. I sort of look over there and I remember it. I appreciate that question because somehow, ever since you asked me that question, I've been feeling that reality in a way that I just never could quite feel it before. I was talking a little bit about it on Sunday. Just this complete understanding, I sort of see this whole planet. I mean, I don't, these, are, these are concepts to me. It's not like I'm, I'm looking at it. So when I say see, I mean see in my mind. But that, that there's this, just this sort of whirling vortex, which is this plane of reality. And it, it just um, has an attraction for us that we can't resist um, for all the reasons that we're here doing it. You know, we just, we get into this and we have all these desires that we want to have fulfilled. We have this memory of this desire for family and all these different things. And we, we get out of a physical body because we get out of physical bodies just on a regular basis. You know, we're not always in one. And when we're out of it, we're in the astral world and we have a more subtle perception of reality. When we're not in the material plane, we're not in the material plane. We still have an ego. And of course, that's what binds us. We still have this um, uh, limited sense of our own reality. You know, it's, it's not as circumscribed when we're in the astral world, if we have any level of advancement. Yogananda says, if you're too material in your consciousness, you never wake up at all in the astral world. You just literally do not wake up until you or have a physical body again, because it's too subtle, you can't see it. You know, it's just like if a person, if you think about a person who's, who's very gross in their appetites and in their pleasures, and you take them to opera, or you take them to ballet, or you take them to a fine art museum, it'll just be like, can't we just get out of here and go somewhere? You know, it's just like, they won't be able to see it because it doesn't vibrate on a level that they can recognize. There are people who come into this church and just walk in and out. It's just like, there's nothing going on in this place. And they just, they can't see it at all. It, that's the only way I can say it. So when, uh, if you die and you have a, a very, very materialistic consciousness, and I don't mean materialistic in that you acquire things, but that your sense of reality is very much circumscribed by the material plane. And then you don't have a physical body and you don't have physical senses and you're not having any of those kinds of experiences. You just really can't feel anything else. And so Yogananda says you sort of stay in a kind of half dream state. You more or less sleep through your astral years or time and you just kind of hang out in a semi, semi-conscious state 
And only when you have a baby's body and you can begin to start feeling things again, do you begin to sort of wake up and become conscious enough again. But for those of us who are, and Yogananda expanded that by saying, if you have a very, very materialistic consciousness and you believe that um, consciousness is a result of your brain activity, when you begin to die and your brain begins to die, as Master put it so sweetly, he said, you feel obligated to go unconscious. <laughs> because you don't know how to be conscious unless you have a brain to be conscious through. So people who are very materialistic will, will not, they won't, they won't be able to die consciously. And that's why it's a benefit of meditation practice and being a devotee to be able to die consciously. Because you can let your body go and recognize that that doesn't mean that I have to become unaware. I can remain aware even though my body is going away. And then you transit into the astral world and you can see it. You can experience it while you're there. So all of us experience that astral realm intermittently and presumably with some degree of awareness, probably even a very large degree of awareness. Swamiji says those of us who helped build the Ananda communities have all lived together in communities in the astral world, is how he put it. He said, and that's why we have such a clear sense of what we're doing and that's why we do it so, so easily, relatively speaking. Because we just know, we just know, we're replicating what we know. In, where, it's, where we really, in the astral world, where you can materialize your thoughts and where you are uh, automatically collected into homogeneous vibratory circles. You know, the, the vibrations don't, don't intermingle like they do on the material plane. You just go to your own vibratory level and, and people who are distant to that can't penetrate it. If you're elevated, you can go down but if you're, if you're darker, you can't penetrate the higher vibrations, just in the ways I was saying. You just can't get there. You can't vibrate with it. So our community in the astral world was very easy to make and easy to run because there was the kind of a vibratory unity to it. So we come here and have to slog it out with mortgages and all the other stuff that you have to do. But nonetheless, we have this very powerful astral memory of it. So we're there in those astral worlds, but we have this subconscious memory which is really to say in our chakras, of this experience and how many times we've had this experience and all the disappointing, uh, all the unfulfillments that we died with, our unfulfilled desires, in other words. You know, everything that we wanted that we didn't get. Yogananda said to uh, um, Swamiji that everything that you desire, uh, you have to eventually fulfill. And therefore, you have to be very careful, you have to be very attentive to your mind and your heart, because if you, if you have this, oh, I wish, oh, look at that beautiful home, I really wish I could live there. Oh, what a beautiful little girl, I wish I'd had a daughter, you know. Oh, look at that woman, she's so lovely, and I just have this dumpling of a body, I wish I looked like her. You know, whatever it might be, you're thinking, um, those things register. And then we're in the astral world where everything is just free, but we have these, these, these roiling vortexes of unfulfilled desires that's just trapped energy. And sooner or later, it sucks us back. And we have to like go out and sort of try to experiment with it again. That's why um, Dr. Lewis, once driving in a car with Master, was looking very longingly at a very homey scene. You know, you know how you go down a neighborhood and you'll see light glowing from a window and you'll see some house that looks just so warm. And Dr. Lewis was kind of getting sucked into this. He wasn't saying anything, but he was doing it. And Master turned to him and he said, Doctor, 
is it worth reincarnating for? <laughs> and Dr. Lewis said, no, sir. <laughs> and he pulled his mind back from it. I, I remember once I was with Swamiji and he was planning a trip to Europe and he had a, a, a stopover in, in London. And we have a group of devotees collected in London. There's a you know, reasonably active center there. And Swamiji, um, as is often the case, was exceedingly busy and was really looking forward to a little break. And he was on his way to Europe and he had this stopover in London and he was trying to decide whether just to go in anonymously, have a night off to himself and then just go on to wherever he was going after that, or whether to call the people in London and tell them he was coming and therefore have a satsang and everything like that. And he just kept going back and forth and back and forth and I finally sort of tuned in and jokingly phrased it this way. I said, I, I, what you're doing, sir, is you're trying to decide... Um, Let's see, how, how do I phrase it exactly? Whether it's better to do it now or risk reincarnating and having to do it then. <laughs> he said, that is exactly the dilemma I'm facing. You know, if this is something I have to do, I want to get it over with, but do I really have to do it? And then he decided, sort of on the basis of that, he phoned. But it's sort of like that's a, a question. Every time we allow ourselves to get drawn out of ourselves and attach to some idea that we feel we have to have for our happiness, that's what's committing you to your next incarnation. It's, it's really, really very serious and it's really very much worth thinking about. That's why people are born into this world who have the understanding from the start that they're just not going to make any more karma. You know, they don't get married, they don't have children, they just don't, they don't get engaged in much. Either they really literally go off to the Himalayas when they're really young, or they, they live in this world, and I don't mean people who are afraid of this world and hold back, but I mean people who just look at it and say, why would I become any more involved in this than I already am? Now, it, that, it doesn't do you any good to affirm that if that's not your true state. But it's also a very real state that you can think about on a regular basis. I know uh, most of the women in the community at least have thought about it since Vanamali Devi came to visit us because uh, she's the, this woman from India who was here. She's about 60 years old, a very lovely, youthful, exceedingly beautiful woman in a totally not um, glamorous, the way we think of it, way, because of her spirituality and her simplicity. And she essentially is a self-declared renunciate and has this little renunciate costume that she wears. And of course, because she's from India, she just has it made. She wears a long skirt and a sort of a long Indian-style shirt and a shawl. And it's, and it's cotton, and it's this beautiful lavender color, and she has three of them, and that's all she ever wears. You know, it's like a nun's outfit for her. But we all looked at that and thought, ah, now there is a really good idea. <laughs> and sort of wondered if we were old enough. I said, I said to David, I can't do it yet, but maybe in a few more years, you know, I can just declare it, and that'll just be that. But it's just, it's the, it's the thought of just, why clutter my life with any more things to think about? Why not just... You know, if I have to live here, because there's another reason that we incarnate, and this is coming down to the masters. We, come, we, we incarnate because we have karma to be here. But part of the karma we have is a great desire to help. You know, just a, 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 a compassion born of our own past experiences getting trapped in this vortex, and a wish to sort of help uh, hold up a, a, a candle of saying, you know, this is, this is the way, come this way, come to, be careful of that, you know, don't step in there, but just come this way. And, and that, too, is a desire. You know, the desire to help people is a real, is a desire, and that, too, will draw you back. 
but it's the kind of desire that liberates you from other desires. It, it, and it's, it's something I know that certainly in the context of Ananda that a great many of us, we have our own karma, certainly. But a lot of our karma was also, well, the job needs to be done, let's go do the job. You know, there comes a time when your work is finished. When Yogananda was guiding Rajasi Janakananda, he, he, Rajasi had a center for a while in St. Louis or Kansas City where he lived, and Yogananda said, just close it. You know, that's just not for you to do anymore. And, in, and when you read Durgamata's book with, uh, about taking care of Rajasi, Master made sure that Durgamata took care of almost everything for Rajasi. He just said to Rajasi, you know, you just, you, you don't need to do anything. You have nothing left that you have to do. You just should meditate. That's the only reason you came here is to meditate and to bless this work. I don't want you to be taking care of anything practical or doing any kind of work. He didn't want him to carry anything. He was a man, but he wanted Durgamata to carry everything heavy for him. He didn't want him to have to carry anything heavy. I guess it would bring him too much into his body. I don't know. You know, these are peculiarities. But there are all these sort of nuances of this involvement. And then you have these souls like, like Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda. And Sri Yukteswar's decision to come was really he came for one reason. It was sort of like he, he belonged to Babaji, he belonged to Lahiri, and he had this job to do, and that was to prepare Yogananda for the West, and also to, in his own way, to also reach out to the West. He wrote the Holy Science, and, and you um, sort of see in this chapter, Yogananda describes him as being an Occidental executive in his habits. You know, that he, he had this appreciation for the West. You, you, it's, it's, a, it's a trend throughout the autobiography is that even these Indian masters are all looking toward the West because that's where Yogananda is going and there's this understanding of this enormous power that has grown up in our part of the world but yet is so spiritually undirected and immature and you have this tremendous spiritual power in India that has yet sort of become encumbered by this chaotic uh, material confusion so you have the great power of these masters in India, who, like Sri Yukteswar, who, who are, as Yogananda described him, India's sole remaining wealth. And, and he's there, and he's, he's come into this world, and he just lives this very orderly, quiet, direct life. And he has re one real job, Sri Yukteswar had one real job, which was to train Yogananda, as, as Yogananda himself writes. Sri Yukteswar didn't have many disciples. There were very few who could um, take it. Although he does comment about how he also trained young boys and how much the boys loved him and, um, and so on. There's some just beautiful passages in there, but most, most people could not handle Sri Yukteswar's uncompromising style. And also, you know, uh, Yogananda is very tactful. But, but the things he says that are direct about Sri Yukteswar are very um, forceful. Just how detached he was, how unemotional he was, how, how very little um, loving support he offered. You know, 25 years between the time he first told Yogananda that he loved him and to the second time that he did it. And I mean, I'm sure no master goes around saying, I love you all the time. But nonetheless, the, the mere fact that, that Master mentions that and the way he talks about Sri Yukteswar gives you this picture of how um, gyanic he was, how he just completely looked at the world in terms of, of uh, the truth of it 
without it all getting engaged in the a superficial part of it. And later on we have that section where Sri Yogananda wants to help him, you know, fix up the ashram and Sri Yukteswar just looks around and says, Why? You know, do it if you want to, what do I care? What difference does it make? And so you have this image of the master, you know, just what difference does it make? I'm just here to do only one thing and that's the main event. And that main event is to take care of my consciousness and to provide inspiration for those who are interested in receiving what I have to give. And that's really all. Everything else is quite of no meaning to me. And it's, it's very, very powerful, just very powerful to meditate repeatedly on just that state of consciousness. Just meditate on yourself as not really being part of this world, but just looking at this world and everything you, you're doing in it from the perspective of, of just having been drawn here, um, you know, um, sucked in from somewhere else and not really going to be here very long and just be on your way again. And what does it all look like from that point of view? And of course, we still have to be responsible. Sri Yukteswar has, uh, Yogananda talks about how false, uh, Casual, more casual teachers had given Yogananda the impression that, that he could be spiritual and irresponsible at the same time. And how, how strongly Sri Yukteswar disciplined him to get him to pay attention to the details of his life and to do them correctly. And yet at the same time, Sri Yukteswar, you know, had no real involvement with, with those details. But again, there's that picture of how it all sort of integrates together. And that's the, the marvelous... Uh, well, what, what you're really meditating on yourself is in the reverse pyramid. You know, meditate from the perspective of being the widest part of the pyramid, looking way down into this tiny little compressed point, which is our present lives. And sort of, what does it look like and what does it feel like? And every time it begins to draw us in too far, you know, just step back and look at it that way. It's very, uh, very interesting. I have, I have one more thing to say about you, Tisha, I can remember. Flips my mind. Any comments or questions or thoughts? I'm just going to turn the pages and just talk about some things that I like. I love right at the very beginning when uh, Yogananda says about Sri Yukteswar, he says, greater he was as man and yogi, which is an interesting statement, isn't it? Because he was talking about um, Swami would often talk about Yogananda in that way too. That it wasn't just that he was a great yogi and a great, had this great consciousness of God, but he was, he was perfect in his humanity, perfect in the way he expressed himself. Um, in, in the path, Swami says about Master that he said, when he chose to relax his discipline, that was the sort of condition that Swamiji puts on it, Yogananda was the most charming man I'd ever met. You know, just, just charm and the way he could relate to people and graciousness. And so Yogananda says that Sri Yukteswar was not merely a great soul, but he was also a great man in the way he related to people. And then the whole rest of the chapter, because this is very early, talks about how he dealt with guests, how he related to children, how he managed his affairs, how he protected his property just sort of how he took every element of human life. And, and Sri Yukteswar had a life that we don't even know about, where he was married and had a wife and raised a daughter and then saw to her marriage. And then, so it's like all these elements of his life he, he did with this uh, 
inner consciousness that, that made him uh, perfect in all of them. I know what I was remembering a moment ago. When we went to India, when we go to India, we often uh, spend time with Hare Krishna Ghosh. Hare Krishna Ghosh is the son of Yogananda's younger brother, Sananda. Hare Krishna must be about 73 or 74 now. 81? Well, you always know. You're so good at this. Okay. Well, he had his 70th birthday when he was with us, but that would have been, that would have been a while ago. 93. So, anyway, so he's a little older than that. Um, but he was 14 or so, or whatever, in 1935, <laughs> when, uh, when, Yo- when Yogananda um, came from America back to India. Oh, but that's not the relevant point. The point is that Sri Yukteswar used to come and visit their family home because Yogananda's father and Sri Yukteswar were friends because they were gurubhais. They were both disciples of Lahiri. So uh, Hare Krishna would sometimes tell us about what it was like when Sri Yukteswar would come. You know, it's just, just astonishing to talk to someone who's actually was there. And he, um, he talked about sort of what's written in the book here how much the children like Sri Yukteswar, which is an interesting sort of dimension. And he would often have candy in his pockets for the children, and that he was very humorous. Uh, that's how Hare uh, Krishna described him. He was, he was much humorous, that's what he would say. And he would sort of talk about, but at the same time, he was, he, he was awesome to them. And uh, Hare Krishna would talk about Sri Yukteswar sort of standing in the doorway and just being so... Um, imposing both physically and then just sort of all the energy he had but then he would break the ice by by joking and having candy in his pockets and just sort of liking very much to relate to the children you know it's just uh it's again it's just such a natural picture and then he would come and spend time meditating or being with his father and they would visit together so you you just sort of see Sri Yukteswar passing the years after Yogananda left 15 years you know his work is really done but he, he lives long enough for Yogananda to come back from India, just sort of visiting and having his friends and just moving from place to place as God inspired him to do, but always with this powerful inner dignity that yet was over such a relaxed and sweet heart that the children could penetrate it, you know, and that they would feel comfortable in his presence even though he was so powerful. Do you see the balancing point there? And again, it's that's like as yogi and as man. Because some great yogis are completely um, just disconnected from anything that looks normal. I mean, some are really eccentric. But, but again, the, this line of masters, all of them, Lahiri, um, Sri Yukteswar, and Yogananda himself, and Swami Kriyananda follows in that tradition beautifully. Although, of course, he's not an avatar. But nonetheless, he follows in the tradition perfectly, which is, this is a path of integrating. You know, it's really integrating how all of that great consciousness just integrates perfectly. And Yogananda sets the tone right away with that statement. You see how every sentence means so much? So you, you just, you, he just throws that in. He was both a man and a yogi. And you think, well, what does that really mean? And you, you, spend, you can spend half your life just trying to think, well, what do those, how do those two things come together? That's why Swamiji says, you know, you just meditate on every sentence of this book for 50 years. And you'll just keep finding something new, new in it that you just never penetrated. Even just a simple statement like that. 
And then Yogananda, I mean, Sri Yukteswar tells these wonderful little stories with these little morals. Look fear in the face and it will cease to trouble you. And you, you just, part of you just sort of is charmed by the sheer picture of, of his poor mother, you know, <laughs> trying to raise Sri Yukteswar, <laughs> or Priya as he was called at that point. But just look fear in the face and it will cease to trouble you. How many times in our lives do we have a fear that we just have to face? And so Sri Yukteswar just puts it just as straight as this. And I certainly know in my life, on many occasions, I thought of Sri Yukteswar opening that closet. And I've just figured, well, let's just look right at this instead of just trying to have it go away. And it's just such a, a, a right here on the ground kind of little bit of teaching. Just look it in the face and it will stop bothering you. Then we have this wonderful thing. Attachment is blinding. It lends, these are such exquisite words, an imaginary halo of attractiveness to the object of desire. How many times in conversation, you know, when you talk about, you know, somebody's passion for something or another or somebody's inexplicable attachment to some person or another. Well, attachment is blinding, you know, that imaginary halo of attractiveness. And it's also a good thing to, to capture in your own heart when you find yourself just so enamored of some person or some object or some idea. And you have to just call it the imaginary halo of attractiveness. You know that if you really desire something, it assumes this um, proportion that's quite unreasonable. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact except that you've gotten caught up into this vortex. Um, then he talks about raising children who've got good and positive ideas. He always had an interest in children, you know, he must have really, um, it, because that's what Yogananda did next, too. You, you see that it's a little bit of a theme through Sri Yukteswar's life. He liked to take in young disciples. He liked to get, get a hold of the boys when they were smaller so that he could really guide them. And in, in this handful of stories he tells, one of them is about how to raise children. And then Yogananda goes and starts this school, and then that thread is continuing, of course, primarily through Ananda at this point. Um, and he talks about getting Kriya again. He'd gotten it twice before, but in my master's presence there was some alchemy that took place that hadn't happened before. And he's also hinting in this about what the true power of Kriya is. You know, elsewhere he talks a great deal about Kriya in its physiological, psychophysical, psycho-spiritual, all the different words that he coins to talk about all the different ways in which Kriya works. But he mentions here that when you get Kriya in connection with the Guru, that the Guru's power is really makes the Kriya something completely else. And so he's, he's again laying a little hint for us, for those of us who practice Kriya, to remember that it's really the relationship with the Master above all that gives it its power. Otherwise, in many ways, it's just a breathing exercise. Um, but he just talks about daily life at the ashram flowed smoothly, infrequently varied. And again, you have just this picture, and those of you who've seen these ashrams in India, which a few of us have, you know, they're um, relatively speaking rural areas, dirt roads. I mean, now they're built up, but it was much more quiet then. You know, just a, a, a complete a tranquil place just in the backwater. When uh, David and I, a number of years ago, uh, traveled through uh, Austria and Germany after one of our trips to India, we just had a couple of weeks and we rented a car and just kind of went here and there. And we went up to Connorsroot, I think it's called, Connorsroot, whatever it's called, where Therese Neumann lived. And uh, she was a great soul. 
In fact, Yogananda said she was Mary Magdalene, come back again. That's why she had such intense experiences of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. But she lived way the heck out, nowhere at all, in, in Germany. Germany and Austria are so amazing because the Germans are so organized and they've been there so long. Every single intersection in the entire country has two signs. <laughs> So you know exactly where you are, no matter how small the road. <laughs> you always know exactly where you are. I mean, you can be a complete idiot and you can drive everywhere in the country, no matter how far you go. So we were way at the ends of the earth, practically at the border. I think it's Czechoslovakia or whatever is up there. But every single intersection still had, both roads were marked perfectly. In Italy, you know what it is? They, um, they, uh, they honor different people by naming sections of the same street. So you'll be on the street for about eight blocks and it'll have one name and then the rest of it will be named for someone else, right? So you'll just, you can't, you'll just go down the street and then suddenly you're on a different street and you have no idea why. And then you're yet on another street, so it's just hopeless. But, but the point being, we went out there. Here, here was this extremely great soul. She just lived nowhere. I mean, and this is many years later, 50 years later, and, and everything has been built up and it was still just nowhere. It was just at the ends of the earth in this little farming district and all these sort of beefy people eating potatoes. Just really, it was just quite a, quite a place to be. But, but it was such a picture in your mind of uh, the thought that we, we consider spirituality to be related to, to the way the world works. You know, if somebody's important, they should be in Washington or New York. You know, at the at very least, Detroit. You know, some place, some place, some place that you know has energy where things happen. You know, you don't think of them as being way just like out here in this tiny circle. And yet, here's Sri Yukteswar. He had an ashram in Sarampore. He had an ashram in Puri, and both of those are like suburbs of Calcutta. And even now, they're really backwater. And then they really were just nothing. Very isolated, rural, quiet places. Because he he didn't come to do anything that had to do with anything that showed. And so, and the ashram routine flowed smoothly and, and scarcely ever varied. You know, it was all about consciousness. And the way Sri Teshwar was contributing was he was transmitting consciousness to those who were interested in it. Of course, his, his role in what has really, is really a revolution for the whole world was through Yogananda. So Yogananda had to go out to Los Angeles and, you know, deal with all of this stuff. Sri Yukteswar just had to launch him. But even if our own lives are uh, more hectic than that, you can still draw into your mind the picture of what that is. You know, this, this waking up with this orderliness, the first, the first reality is divine consciousness. Then we, you know, we walk by the Ganges, we talk about philosophy. His business, Sri Yukteswar had a very important, steady business, and that was training all those disciples. And so you can see that the whole ashram structure was just set up to train the disciples. They were with him, he was with them, he was talking to them. Yogananda says, you know, they'd walk by the Ganges. And Yogananda says, ah, with the easy resurrection of memory, I can just be there again, just walking with my master. And how his words, you know, you asked the question about when was Yogananda trained. And it says, he says in here, no one could expound on the scriptures like Sri Yukteswar. So he was trained in all those hours walking by the Ganges where he would just, Sri Yukteswar would just talk. Invariably, he would just talk. I know a little bit of this because of my years with Kriyananda. 
And that's sort of what Swamiji is like. You just never know. You just walk and all of a sudden you're just in the most deep and interesting conversation and you're just, your whole sense of reality is transformed and you're, you know, you're in the Stanford Shopping Center or someplace like that. You're just, just sort of living your life but this constant flow of, of, of wisdom is just coming through. And so Sri Yukteswar lived this very steady life and just was always there. And then visitors would come in the afternoon. Like, not, you didn't have to be 100% dedicated in order to have access to him. But Master makes that statement. If Sri Yukteswar had been just a little less severe, he would have been the most sought-after guru in India. <laughs> I love that little line, like they're sought-after gurus. You know, like, this is a popular one, this is not such a popular one. <laughs> but especially... I mean, in, in true India, which doesn't really exist anymore, but in true India, that is how the culture is. It's, it's just, you, that's your interest. Everybody, everybody knows that your great interest is to be spiritually inspired, and so there would be such a thing as a popular guru, like a popular restaurant. Now, you know, that's what we go to is the popular restaurant. There we go to the popular guru. But nonetheless, sort of word of his remarkable nature, I'm sure, would be passed around and people would come to test their mettle against him or to just sit in his presence and be inspired. And, and Yogananda describes himself often crouching in the corner while these things are taking place, you know, just sort of being part of the crowd that's always there watching the experience of the Master and learning as much as anything. That's where he would say things like that as a yogi and as a man. Watching Sri Teshwar and his constant interaction with others, too, would be the teaching to Yogananda of how how wisdom expresses itself in regular life. Any comments or questions? Oh, I love this line too. The impartiality of saints is rooted in wisdom. Masters have escaped Maya, its alternating faces of intellect and idiocy. No longer cast an influential glance, but Maya's alternating face of intellect and idiocy. I mean, it's such a, just an, oh, it just the, and he also just talked about how you know to Sri Yukteswar everyone looked the same it, like all these little distinctions and he talks about men and women look the same to him it's just everyone looks the same we're all just sort of little vortexes of energy trapped on this field of maya and from his perspective it isn't like this person's reality and this one and this one and this one and all the little um, I mean the power of being in the company of a saint is we begin to see ourselves in that same light you know, we, we're mostly so involved in our own little story. Oh, what's going to happen with this and what's going to happen with that and who did this and how am I going to deal with this and what about my child and what about my husband and what about my job? And, but from the point of view of the masters, it's just this flow of light that we're just working our way through. And all the little details that are, that are so uh, overwhelming to us, they don't even exist. And that's why the masters, as he puts it, are so impartial. Because he just sees it all as this sort of alternating waves of maya you know, and just sort of, needs to, just with his calm understanding, just sort of takes us through the alternating waves of Maya, and it doesn't really make much difference to them what it is we're dealing with. It's just the pain between two pleasures or the pleasure between two pains, as Yogananda said, and the details really become unimportant after a period of time. And so with calm dispassion, he would greet people and have that understanding. All right. Um, let me take a little break. Take about 10 minutes and then we'll come back and finish. Oh, thank you. It was a very interesting comment. I'll just, do you want to share it or do you want me to say it? Okay. But Bob was saying that 
um, he tuned into Sri Yukteswar better when he listened to Swamiji read the chapter because Swamiji's, the consciousness with which Swamiji read Sri Yukteswar's words um, communicated more warmth and uh, more kindness than, than, than the stereotype we get. That's sort of what I've been sort of trying to say. It, it crystallized what I've been sort of trying to say. Yogananda said he was, as a man and as a yogi, he was one of the greatest I've ever known. And to what makes a man great is not merely his sternness, but every, every other aspect of his nature employed. What, where, where Sri Yukteswar's sternness came from was the, the fact that he was a jnani. And we, we should spend a moment speaking about that. You know, there's four, we talk about four basic approaches to the, the, the divine, depending on your temperament. There's the active temperament, the person who's what they call a karma yogi, somebody who does a, a lot of service and, and sort of the way they feel their attunement is by actively giving out their energy. And not all karma yogis, sometimes we say I'm a karma yogi, which really means I'm just a really restless person. <laughs> but the true karma yogi is understanding themselves as an instrument of the divine and just being active that way. The bhakti yogi is the one who is full of devotion and makes their way through life by the power of love and by the power of seeing God's love and expressing God's love in everything. And we think of bhaktis as people who like to chant and are devotional and do ceremonies and so on, but that's a more superficial side. Yogananda was a more of a bhakti. He had this great love for Divine Mother. Um, even Rajasi called him a prem avatar, an avatar, an incarnation of Divine Love. That was his nature. And uh, jnana, is, is the wisdom path. It's, it's discriminating and understanding, uh, finding divine truth by the power of discrimination. And it's not the same as being an intellectual. Being an intellectual is being trapped in your mind. Being a jnani is that you, you penetrate through maya by this great, calm perception of what's true no matter what comes. The bhakti penetrates through maya by just loving everything so much that it all sort of becomes an expression of Divine Mother. The karma yogi by serving all is the divine. But the jnana yogi stands back and just perceives the truth. The um, neti neti, not this, not this, not this. That means that you just look at everything compared to eternity and you eliminate everything that isn't infinite and then you're left with the infinite. So when I... The, the last great Halloween costume we ever did was three girls, uh, three girls, we did it together. And uh, one girl, Arati, was the tooth fairy, and Cassandra was the, the sweet tooth, and she was all covered with fillings. And I was the wisdom tooth, and I had a little sign that said, Neti, Neti, on it. <laughs> so we had a great time for one Halloween night. But it's a very... Uh, but, but that leads you, the practice of neti neti, of jnana yoga, leads you to a great um, a detachment, you know, because you're, 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 you're just seeing everything from a very different point of view. So what people think of as yoga, uh, as Sri Yukteswar's harshness, as Swamiji said, you know, masters don't have personalities because underneath it, it's all infinite love. They're, they're perfect manifestations of the divine. So all masters, including Sri Yukteswar, are perfect manifestations of infinite love. But they have this little bit of a veneer. And his veneer was this very, um, always greatly detached. Now that would feel um, austere or severe, in a sense, 
because we're so because we're used more to a, a more involved attitude. But it wouldn't mean there would be harshness. It would it would just mean that austerity of always seeing things in terms of the divine. So that's what that's what you really capture here. But that leads again. This is how the vibrations of these masters can help us. That leads to a great sense of dignity. Swamiji often uh, encourages us to be more dignified, especially when we were younger and much less so. <laughs> but he would often say, you know, just be a little more dignified. And we, I could never really understand what that meant, you know. <laughs> I just <laughs> was 20, I didn't know what he was talking about. But that's what, above all, that's what you sort of see in Sri Keshwar is this profound dignity of, of just this great expanded consciousness moving through this world. And a lot of times in circumstances in our own lives, a greater sense of dignity is very becoming, as Swami has often put it. Because that, if, especially if it's rooted in the spine, it's not uh, pride and it's not intellectuality, it's just rooted in the spine. And so you, you see, you can feel Sri Yukteswar carrying this massive consciousness around on this, on this powerful spine, you know, that just made him so strong in himself that he could then be any way that he needed to be with others. And, he, and he, he had no fear of being hurt by any living creature. In other ends, uh, Yogananda spends a lot of time, Master spends a lot of time talking about Sri Yukteswar's financial independence, you know, and just his, his complete unwillingness to go along with anything unless he felt in really inspired to do so. But at the same time, you don't find him censorious or or, or, or judgmental in any way, he was just entirely detached. Even, uh, I, I keep coming back to the story, which isn't even in this chapter, but even that little scene where Yogananda says, oh, I want to buy you a nice rug for here. You know, and Sri Yukteswar just in that Gyanic way, just, why? <laughs> and Yogananda feels himself all of a sudden just the little ashramite, you know. He just made a suggestion that seemed like a good idea. And, and Sri Yukteswar just reflects back, why? And you could see, you know, in that, even in that little story, is like the whole training that Yogananda talks about here, where he talks about it didn't matter whether they were in public or in private, in any way that Yogananda did not behave properly, Yukteswar reminded him. Huh. You know, it mind, especially the ego, immediately throws up all the reasons. You know, well, I would have done it differently except this had happened, or I think it's good enough, or that seemed like, you know, just all the different things we do. And so that would cause Sri Yukteswar to have to push harder, both to get us to understand what right behavior is. Uh, you know, one of Sri Yukteswar's famous remarks is simply learn to behave. And also to get Yogananda to stop resisting the inflow of the Guru's consciousness. Because we spend, we spend a great deal of our energy resisting the inflow of the Guru's consciousness. You know, there he is. There he is now, just wanting to align us and cause us not to instinctively react to this and try to justify ourselves there and shrink from a hope we don't get caught and then hover over here and worry, you know. And the, the Master's consciousness, Sri Yukteswar was perfectly at ease in this world. He was, he was afraid of nothing. The whole ridiculous story that Yogananda tells about the mosquitoes, you know, and the mosquito netting and how he really wanted the mosquito netting and Sri Yukteswar humored him and let him put up the mosquito netting. But then finally, Sri Yukteswar just says to him, you know, is the whole world going to rearrange itself for you? Get rid of mosquito consciousness, right? Now, of course, 
many of us really just, uh, it's, it's ironic to me because when we do this India trip, which I always, ref I keep referring to now as we get closer and closer, this class ends, you know, on Tuesday and on Saturday we leave for India, so it's really like right up into that. Um, one of the things I always take when I go to India is a very light piece of silk that I can wrap myself in completely. Primarily I take that for the, for the Sri Yukteswar's ashram in Serampore and in Puri, which have more mosquitoes than any place we ever go. Not always, depends on the season. But uh, there are two places I love to meditate, but we're just often buried in mosquitoes, so I always make sure that I have something to wrap around myself completely. And every time I do, I think about this, you know, but there it is, I have mosquito consciousness. But it's, it's an example of, of the way Sri Yukteswar would teach. He would let Yogananda's energy run, and then he would tell him the truth when he felt him ready to do it. Now, of course, Yogananda makes a big joke out of the whole thing, and he makes it seem very funny. But still, that's what Sri Yukteswar is reflecting. He's saying to him, you want to be free? You know, you, you made me promise there, that first, uh, the first page here, Yogananda says, I want God consciousness from you. And Sri Yukteswar spends an hour before he's willing to say yes. An hour-long verbal tussle ensued, right? Finally, Sri Yukteswar said, yes, I will give you God consciousness. So Yogananda's there for God consciousness, but he wants a mosquito net. And so Sri Yukteswar says back to him, if you really want God consciousness, you have to, you have to rise above that too. And so time after time, you know, every little thing that Yogananda would do that was not really going to lead him in the direction that Sri Yukteswar had promised to take him, he would just remind him. You know, he lifts his hand to swat the mosquito. He says, go ahead and finish the job. You've already done it in your mind. So it's just like the, the guru is attentively watching, and every time the consciousness waffles, and according to the way Yogananda described it, Sri Yukteswar's way was to, to, to uh, respond. I'm sure a lot of the response was nonverbal. It just came, you know, it's just the realization within himself that he was not where he ought to be. Now, you have this little tiny scene when uh, Yogananda's listening attentively to Sri Yukteswar, he thinks, and Sri Yukteswar says, you're not listening. And of course, the first thing Yogananda says, yes, I am, sir, right? You know, yes, I am. Isn't that way it always is? The first thing you say is, you know, oh, no, I'm fine, just the way I am. I said, we're just such a lunkhead. And he says, no, you're not. You're, you were subconsciously, you had these pictures in your mind. And as soon as it was true, Yogananda just, of course, it was true. And it, then he says, what can I do, sir? My mental processes are an open book to you. And Sri Yukteswar says, only because you've asked me. So just for 10 years is how long his training went on. And, and Yogananda just spent, you know, day after day after day in his guru's company. And every time his consciousness waffled, Sri Yukteswar, when they were in public, when they were in private, he would remind him and put him back on course. Yes, Steve. Yes, it's true, exactly. But even that, yeah. And then Yogana, then Sri Yukteswar just confirms that this is what's going to happen. You know, in, in this edition of the book, he says, I, 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 on the plane at Rancho, I would start a boys' school, you know, and then the headquarters. But the later editions of the book say, on the plains of Rancho, I would start the, a worldwide headquarters for the Vidya Law Law Brahmacharya Blah 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 YSS thing. I mean, it's just... <laughs> As if that's what Yogananda said. Yogananda said, I'd start a boys' high school. You don't say I was going to start the big, super mucky-muck institution headquarters. I mean, no normal person speaks like that. 
just, if you're not reading the blue book, throw away the orange book and go over there and get one of these. Yogananda was? Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your question. Oh, you mean Yogananda? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, absolutely an example for us. And even the way he writes this chapter, that's what I was saying at the beginning, the extraordinary respect and appreciation and attunement and I'm just pure love. You know, you just, you know this is such a, a, a poem of, of gratitude and praise just, you know, just telling the world what an extraordinary man Sri Yukteswar was. So unusual, it's so sensitively and insightfully written. And that too is, that's the disciple's part, because the guru doesn't expound himself. It's the disciple who makes him known. I was just listening to Swami Kriyananda's tape. It was actually a satsang he gave here when he was here in the spring. And... Uh, he was just saying, he was talking about how when he writes words, when he writes music, Swamiji was saying this. He says he never, he never writes anything that he wants to write. He just always says, Master, what do you want to write? And then he said, you know, I just don't care. He says, I just don't care about Kriyananda. He said, he even used that phrase that people laugh at. Kriyananda's just a bum, he said. He doesn't matter at all. He said, all that matters is that insofar as I can be an instrument for Yogananda, that's what counts. And it's sort of like... Um, it's just the way, it's the way it works. And see, what's also, you have to appreciate also, the first sentence of this book, first paragraph of the book, is about the disciple-guru relationship. And uh, when Larry Ryder was making up a, a, an autobiography trivia game, you know, he just would pull all these, what was the name of the ship that Yogananda took from India to America? And one of the first ones was essentially, what's the first sentence of the autobiography? And everyone would get it wrong, because everyone would say the guru-disciple relationship. And now we all know, because of the trivia game, that it actually says the disciple-guru relationship. Which is, it's very interesting, though, because the guru is always there, but, th but there has to be a disciple before there's a relationship. And, so, and, and in a very true sense, you have to become a disciple before you have a guru. Because if you're not receptive, there's no relationship. And so what we also have here is Yogananda, we don't, we don't think of him like that. And one of the, um, uh, one of the things that SRF is doing <laughs> is they're gradually trying to make Yogananda more and more important. It's partly because they don't have any control over the whole lineage created by Sri Yukteswar, and so they just kind of want to ace it out. If you open the back of the, of the editions, the latest editions of Autobiography of a Yogi, there's a little section called Our Line of Gurus, and at the bottom it says Sanskrit key to pronunciation and then they show you how to, you know, the, the, the phonetic spelling of all the names. The top is two paragraphs. Babaji is the supreme master who promises to take care of all SRF, YSS, uh, Self-Realization Fellowship members who faithfully practice Kriya. <laughs> um, and then there's Babaji, and then there's Yogananda. And then Babaji said to Yogananda, you're the one I've chosen to send it to the West. That's all. That's all that's mentioned. Then down here, you know, they're listed. But, you know, it's subtle. I became outraged, but I realized nobody else is going to get it, really. But it's, it's because what they're doing is just trying to make Yogananda more and more important. Um, because, after all, I don't know, 
but but it's very but it's very 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 detrimental to the mission exceedingly detrimental to the mission because then you end you're going to end up where you're going to end up is exactly where christianity ended up you're going to end up with this sort of force that just popped up and was just there right and you're just not going to have any sense of of what the real experience is and we're all just going to be left like christians are left now with nothing to do except hope that he helps you right whereas whereas what yogananda actually brought is this whole magnificent story of gurus and disciples and gurus and disciples and and the, this uh, extremely free and magnificent dissemination of these teachings srf doesn't like any of that of course because where does srf fit in you know if little prafula who is a disciple of sri keshwar is off somewhere kri- teaching kriya yoga it's, it's out of our control right but that is the true teaching and it's exceedingly powerful and even just the picture of yogananda as a disciple tells us that we're never too great to be disciples that that's what it looks like to be great and that's how swamiji would describe yogananda he was he remained his 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 master's disciple to the end of his life there's even a story swami tells i don't have it exactly clear but the essence of it was that some startlingly difficult challenge came to yogananda and he was helpless until he prayed to sri yukteswar and then when he prayed to sri yukteswar the power came and he was able to do it and and to swamiji it was just so instructive that you never stop being the disciple of your master because that's the way it's done it's the disciple guru relationship look at the story of christ yogananda tells us that john the baptist had been jesus's guru in the past life that they were elijah and elisha i always get the, the names wrong you know at the end of the old testament but so that that's when john was there but john had given over all his spiritual power to jesus because jesus asked for it that's what happens at the end of the old testament is that uh Elijah's disciple asks for his power and he and essentially Elijah says if you're if you're capable of receiving it I will give it to you. This is the story as Yogananda tells it. I said to Swami Ji, "Wiz, that's complicated. I mean, what a thing to throw in there." But that's nonetheless so that Jesus was born greater than his guru. Of course, uh his fall, John the Baptist's decline was very temporary and very slight. But Jesus was born greater than his master. And and so that's the whole drama that you see when John is there and he says, you know, I'm just a lone voice in the wilderness. I'm something. But one is coming uh, who whom I am not fit to tie the latchet of their shoes. You know, he's he's so much greater than I that I will fall at his feet. And so when Jesus appears on the scene, now John the Baptist of course then Jesus knew each other because their mothers were cousins. You have that whole part there where Mary goes to Jesus Mary and Elizabeth meet and the babes in the womb recognize each other but the the story is that when uh, all the the children were being killed John was sent to the wilderness and some of the legends they actually were sent out as a child and he just raised himself in the wilderness because he was such he, he went to the Himalayas as a child you know he was just born for this one thing and that's why when he came back into society he was such a wild man he wore animal skins and he was completely crazy according to the stories that i've read i i don't know how, what the truth of it really is is that he had raised himself in the wilderness and he just came back to, because he was called by god to do this little bit of a thing and then ended up getting his head cut off it was kind of a very important but not a long part you know <laughs> but the end of all of this is that he's there and he's preaching like this and then jesus comes on the scene 
And John wants to fall at Jesus' feet. And, and Jesus says, no. And Jesus says, you have to baptize me. John said, I can't baptize you. you know, and we're not just talking about pouring water. We're saying, I can't really bless you. It's you have to bless me. Jesus says, no. It's in the fitness of things that you should bless me, and that's the way it should be. And uh, now Jesus is instructing John, but John accepts it as true, and so John plays the role. And Yogananda says it's just the supreme example that the disciple is always the disciple of his master. And even here you have the, the story where um, Sri Yukteswar says, uh, what, uh, you know, if I ever fall from great heights, what, what you, the way the story is, is, you know, Yogananda says, uh, Sri Yukteswar asks for his love, his unconditional love, is that how it is? Do I have the story correct? And, uh, the, the, and Sri Yukteswar speaks also, you know, if I ever fall from a state of realization, you need to help me take my head on your lap and draw me back to it again. It's an odd thing for the guru to ask of the disciple. But what, what, But it's a friendship. It's, it's a commitment that they have together. And that's, that's the uh, complete and, and foundation of it. Yogananda describes the perfect guru-disciple relationship is friend. Because friend is perfect freedom. And see, what you see, both Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda expressing to each other all through this chapter is this perfect freedom of perfect friendship. Now, Sri Yukteswar was a, a, an elderly man and Yogananda was just a teenage boy. I mean, he, was, he just graduated high school. He was just starting college, 18, 19 years old. And Sri Yukteswar was 50 or so at the 55. Okay, but he was, he was a elderly. <laughs> you wonder how he could even stand up anymore, really. Yeah, but, but it was a father-son is all that I was trying to say. But he was strong, he was youthful, he was dynamic. He did Kriya. <laughs> but he was uh, the father and Yogananda was the son. But what you see between them is this, this commitment of freedom. That Sri Yukteswar will help Yogananda as long as Yogananda wants it. And Yogananda will be his disciple as long as he's willing to accept his discipline. And you have the story too of Kumar, which is, is Kumar is a very instructive story in here, not, not, not only for the reasons that are obvious, such as the wonderful uh, keen intelligence is a two-edged sword. You can either use it to, you know, in, in, increase your delusion or cut your way out of it. But uh, because here's Kumar, whom Sri Yukteswar was infatuated with or particularly fond of. And I, don't you just love the way Yogananda deals with that? He says, well, even masters, you know, just have a right to have these odd characteristics. And who can say? Who can just fathom the complexity of, of human nature? And, uh, and even masters express it. it, just, it, it I mean, there's so many little things like little gems. like uh, So when you see things in the world that just confuse you a little bit, you just sort of shrug. You think of Sri Teshwar and Kumar. Who can say why people feel the way they do? Everybody just has these peculiarities. And it's just, there's just, literally, if you just memorize the chapter, you'll know what to do in every circumstance. <laughs> but, uh, but here's Kumar, who, who wants to go back to his home village. Yukteswar knows it's going to destroy his spiritual potential for the whole incarnation. But he, all, all they describe is that Kumar ignored Master's gentle hints. Okay? Sri Yukteswar is gently hinting that Kumar should not go. Now this is the same context 
of the, the guru who's being absolutely exact, you know, about every little gesture that Sri Yukteswar is not, I mean, that Yogananda is not doing correctly. But when it comes to actually interfering, you know, and stepping over that line of where the disciple's own commitment is not there, you know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't use his will to make you do something that your own will is not engaged in. He just merely hints. Right? You see how subtle that is? That's the relationship of friends. And in this next chapter, when Yogananda runs away for what is actually a whole year, you know, he just leaves, and Sri Yukteswar knows it's folly, but he just goes. And, and Yukteswar doesn't... So we have to also understand, this is the sort of yonic power, lest we think that authoritarian is overbearing, or authoritarian is imposing your will on others. It's not at all. It's merely being, it's, it's, it's radiating your will, is the only way I could think of. Uh, Yukteswar radiated the truth, and it was up to Sri Yukteswar whether or not, he, uh, Yogananda, whether he took it in or not. You see? And that also, again, shifts the way we think of his strength, Sri Yukteswar's strength, because we're so used to seeing ego imposed. It's very different than, than, than genuine selfless love. You know, very well then, if you don't want it, that's fine. You know, Kumar doesn't want it anymore, you'll have to send him away, that's fine. I love also just a little tiny point of Yogananda is in charge of the ashram, and then Sri Yukteswar says, well, you know, Kumar has to be in charge. Now, uh, we, uh, <laughs> we get so upset when things don't go right, right? And so Sri Yukteswar just puts this incompetent, overbearing individual in charge of the ashram, and everybody in the ashram just has to live through it. Because what does Sri Yukteswar care about how well-run his ashram is? It means nothing. All that matters is it's just, it's an entity established for the liberation of everyone. You know, and the more we can think about Ananda, certainly, but actually the whole world is just an entity established for the liberation of everyone, um, the more we can rid ourselves of mosquito consciousness, you know, of the thought that uh, all these things have to go away and adjust to us. It's just set up to run its course and for people to learn their lessons. But again, you also get a, well, I, I understand these things from having watched Swami all these years. You know, it's just, if, if individuals need spiritual lessons, that's dharma. And where there is dharma, there is always victory. And if the short-term flow is chaotic, that really makes no difference because the long, the project is the consciousness. And if the consciousness is enhanced, the project is enhanced, even literally. Once uh, I've always remembered that. Uh, the peanut cartoon of Pigpen, who sort of stands in the middle of the whirling dust storm, you know, and everywhere he moves, he just moves in this dust storm, especially in the early years of Ananda, a little bit less so now, I say, unfortunately. Ananda was just like a whirling dust storm. It was just such chaos. There was just no order or system to anything. But it was like that the whole tornado would just move forward. You know, internally it was just totally mixed up, but the whole thing just kept progressing. You know, now, unfortunately, we look a little more orderly. I'd like it to look a little more chaotic. Swamiji would mix it up a lot more than he doesn't participate so much. We used to just, you know, nobody ever held a job for any period of time. It was, you were always just getting switched. Nothing ever really got together. It wasn't important, as he said himself. He said, I'm not training you to be accountants. He said, I, and he said it then. He said, many of you someday will have to lead your own communities and you need to, need to know everything. You know, quite prophetic. So we'd just get moved from place to place. And he was always just scrambling it up. But just this little tiny vignette here of all those other disciples having to live under Kumar being in charge. You know? And again, 
from a realistic point of view, for, for other disciples, that can be very frustrating. You know, these are challenges to your attunement and your understanding. Of course, for Yogananda, it was no test. Well, I've talked a great deal. Is there anything particular that needs to be said that hasn't been said? Any questions or comments? Yes, Stephanie. <laughs> oh, ask it and let's see. <laughs> you're, you're close. You're, oh, well, I'll let you finish your question. To create Yogananda. Okay, here's the question. I know it's, Swami said was speaking once of a great master. I said, how can there be a great master, Swamiji? He said it's a, an absolute state of consciousness. He said they're, they're they're defined as great because of the work they do in the world. So an avatar an avatar doesn't come unless he's come to change history. Okay. And that's how, when the, the chapter's about Babaji, it says, you know, most avatars come for a particular purpose and leave their mark. Babaji's incarnation is different because he's concerned with the slow evolution of things. So if there's an avatar around, uh, so they say, you'll notice. Because otherwise they don't bother. That kind of power would... Now, it, I'm sure avatars come in with, with missions that you notice, but you don't know what you're seeing. You know, like avatars, for example, like might incarnate in the Himalayas and be the, the source of tremendous inspiration and upliftment, and there would be there would be tangible signs in the world, but almost no one would know that where the where it was coming from. So that kind of energy could probably also be um, expressed. So who knows? It, it's a bit of a mystery. And if we really know, someday we'll know. I presume. David once said something that became famous in the in the annals of the little circle that I run in. One day he was introducing an idea and he said, you know, I just thought of this and I'm not sure it's a good idea and I'm really not sure it'll work and I'm not even sure I believe it, but here it is. <laughs> I thought you were sort of going for one of those, Stephanie. <laughs> you did it already. You got it out. All right, anything else? Yes, when the saint is clearly... So by the time you understand it, you'll know. But it was a good question. Somebody asked once, Swami, um, why didn't everybody leave all the other rabbis and just go with Jesus? I mean, you know, he was the best around. But there's other more subtle things at play. We just have our own inner karma with these things, and we, it's different than that. Yes? One of my favorite quotes regarding discipline and yoga because I'm talking about Yes, that's exactly right. That's a marvelous one. I love that one. Oh dear. <laughs> that's what I often say to people when they're feeling really down about some mess they've made out of their lives. Look, if you were too good for this world, you'd be adorning another. <laughs> You're here because we're here. I'll just sort of, you know, underline and we'll just talk about each one as we go through it, but it's, it's half the chapter and it was really just, became almost random after a while. I was just thinking about certain aspects of this which are really quite remarkable. Um, one of the characteristics of our path, which is really very unusual, usually um, a great mission, there's one avatar. There's one great soul that comes and like Jesus or Krishna or Rama, I mean any of the stories that you know, there's one avatar, one fully self-realized master who descends entirely to help. And he, of course, attracts to him, uh, to, to help him with his job, uh, a number of advanced disciples. 
But advanced disciples are not the same as avatars. Avatars have a unique power. When Yogananda was explaining to his disciples, you know, what the nature of an avatar was as opposed to uh, a siddha or someone who was advanced but not the same, one of the disciples asked him, you know, are you an avatar? And his answer was, a work of this importance would have to be started by such a one. You know, it wasn't a question he could just answer yes, but he just had to say, it takes that kind of power to create the kind of change that self-realization has come to bring. But this situation is where you have four, five, in fact, a lineage of avatars. It's very, very, very unusual. And three of them, well, Babaji, of course, is still in the Himalayas. But, you know, three of them were incarnated and lived just in a sort of normal cycle. Babaji's role is very direct with his path, um, but he's had this longer lasting relationship, but nonetheless, it's still direct with his path. So what you have here, which is so unusual, is you have one realized soul um, acting out the role of guru and the other realized soul acting out the role of disciple. And then you have one of the masters telling the story, you know, just sort of really describing uh, what the perfect disciple, from the perfect disciple's perspective on the master. And it's, it's just a very, uh, it, it's so um, potent. The chapter is so potent because you have both of these forces coming together. You have this extraordinary expression, which is Sri Yukteswar, which, I mean, even Yogananda himself describes him as, as, as someone enigmatic. And uh, you can sort of see how Yogananda loves him, but nonetheless, he's a bit of a puzzle to him at the same time. Um, he appreciates him, but he's, he's a bit of a mystery. And then you have Yogananda, who has the, the perfect disciple's attitude and has both the capacity to um, appreciate what he's seeing. Because he, 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 uh, you can't really understand what you're looking at when you look at a master unless you have the consciousness to perceive it. Otherwise, very, um, their very humanness blinds you to the superhumanness that you're looking at. All right, that's you. No, no class next week. Two weeks, we'll see you.